Scream to Reality Entertainment presents the Think Tank Podcast. Starring your host, he's a podcaster, photographer, filmographer, writer, conspiracy fascist, entrepreneur, explorer, color commentator, picky eater, beer ninja, secret agent, and the world's most influential humanoid, he is Ryan the Area Man. And now, coming to you pre-recorded from the very secretive D2R Studios, deep undercover in the world's deepest, darkest, most secure, Hadron Collider and Nuclear Bomb Tested and Approved Doomsday Bunker, here is Ryan the Area Man! What's up everybody? I'm Ryan the Area Man, this is the Think Tank Podcast. Today's episode has been the uh, is the result of the culmination of the last two weeks where we started with Ruby Ridge, then it went into the Waco Massacre, and now today the Oklahoma City bombing. Timothy Timothy McVeigh, who uh, claimed sole responsibility in in this bombing, and uh, he was outraged by the Ruby Ridge incident. He protested, sold posters and bumper stickers, and uh, you know, white power type materials at the Waco incident, and his anger and outrage at those previous two incidences led him supposedly to the Oklahoma City bombing incident. So, that's what we talk about today. Um, in similar fashion to the previous two weeks, we will play an prepackaged audio uh, production that you can find on YouTube, and then uh, then Dave and I get into the discussing the the whole thing. And uh, Dave, uh, coming into this particular episode about the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, actually fully buying into the um, official story. Naturally. I'm not quite that interested in the official story because usually official stories are littered with lies and bullshit and uh, I like to look at all sides. So I've heard the official story, I've heard the all the other sides and uh, to me there's something too when you have numerous witnesses witnessing one thing but the investigators completely disavow and don't acknowledge those eyewitness accounts now at the same time you could say oh well the eyewitness in court they're the they're the worst uh you know they're the worst um pieces of evidence because they can't be relied upon and they're probably less uh relied upon than a a uh, lie detector uh, thing but yet and those aren't even allowed you know, to be submitted as evidence. So, uh, I don't know. I, I you'll see. Um, we'll play this uh, this audio package first. Then Dave and I get into it, and it starts with us discussing between the differences between the official story and the uh, the other possibilities that could be. And uh, we watch a few other videos towards the end there, 
of uh, our discussion, and uh, I don't know. We come to a determination, but uh, you'll have to listen to find out what that is. Um, so yeah, this is a fun one. It's interesting, and uh, the last two weeks have all led up to here. So here we are at the big finale. Um, real quick, do some shopping online. Well, there's lots of places you can shop online, but probably the most convenient place to get just about anything you want is Amazon. But before you go directly there, do us a favor here at the podcast. Help support this podcast by going to theareaman.com, clicking the Sponsor tab, then the Amazon banner. It's right at the top there. And uh, then bookmark it. If you bookmark it, you never have to go through those steps again. And then uh, always go back to that bookmark. And um, it'll always uh, trigger Amazon to say, hey, you clicked through the D2R Podcast Network to get here. And so now whatever you're going to buy at the same great low prices, uh, we're going to throw that Podcast Network a small percentage of our profits back. So it costs you nothing extra to do this. And uh, Amazon makes a profit on what, what you buy there. So they take a small portion of their profits, a little percentage, and throw it our, our way. Now, the more people that do this, the more percentage Amazon throws our way. As like, oh, you're sending us lots of people, well, we'll send you a higher percentage. Well, the more the percent that they send us, the more we make, which means the better we can make this podcast. And uh, this is how you get to listen to it for free. All we're do, asking you to do is an extra step for us, and that's clicking the areaman.com and the sponsor tab and the Amazon banner. And then bookmark it. Then you never have to do it again. So we appreciate it. Amazon appreciates it. And I'm sure you appreciate getting the same great low prices. And you feel good because you feel like you're uh, helping out the podcast, which you are. And that's awesome. It's a win-win-win. So go do it. And thank you. Also, if you have a beard, want to get yourself some beard oils, or you're like, what the hell's a beard oil? Well, I'll tell you. You go to phoenixbeardoils.com. Maybe you know somebody that has a beard. You don't have one yourself, but you know somebody that does. And you're like, man, I I don't know what to get so-and-so for birthday or Christmas or whatever uh, reason. Just a gift to get them a gift. But you're like, they got this beard and it's two feet long and I want to get them something. But I don't know what to get them. Go to phoenixbeardoils.com. You can read all about why beard oils are good for the beard. Um, the, the different fragrances that they have there. If you can't pick just uh, one of the fragrances that you, you can't make a decision and you're like, I don't know, there's so many that sound amazing, get the sampler pack. You can get the sampler pack that comes with like 12, I think. 12 or something like that. and uh, 10 or 12. I, I forget. I think it's 12. But uh, you can get 12 different fragrances with the sampler pack. Or if you like, you know, I'm going to get this particular one. I know I'm going to like this one, or I know that person's going to like this one. Whatever you want to do. During checkout, enter the promo code D2R, and you will get 10% off your entire order. And a free sample. So if you got the sampler pack, you're going to get 10% off the sampler pack, and then an additional free sample. So you're, you're I think it's 12 that's in the thing, so you'd actually get 13 samples. Or if you bought, say, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 bottles of whatever fragrances, you're going to get 10% off all those bottles, and then a free sample of 
a fragrance that you didn't buy. So they're going to give you something different to just try for free. How can you beat it? But you got to enter the promo code D2R. If you don't do that, no, no 10% off and no free sample. So got to enter the promo code D2R. And, uh, yeah, that's enough out of me. Let's get into this uh, episode about the Oklahoma City bombing. Enjoy. Thank you. 
the 19th of April, 1995. Oklahoma City, the heartland of America, is hit by the deadliest terrorist attack the nation had ever suffered. Until his execution six years later, Timothy McVeigh maintained that he alone detonated the bomb that killed 168 people. But was McVeigh telling the truth, or was he covering up for others unknown? He wanted to accept responsibility. It protected the others. So he fell on the sword for them. He died to save them. Federal prosecutors closed the case after convicting McVeigh and two accomplices in the bomb plot. But witnesses say they saw other unidentified persons with McVeigh at the time of the blast. It appears to be people that are still out there involved in this conspiracy that have never been identified. Some believe that these co-conspirators were homegrown, domestic revolutionaries trained at a white supremacist camp. April 19th, the anniversary of Waco was, was going to be a red-letter day. Some, that they were foreign terrorists. I heard the name Osama bin Laden, Ramsey Yosef, and I remember thinking, my God, what have we uncovered here? The FBI insists it has caught all those responsible. If there were others unknown, I guarantee you we would have gotten them. But this contention is disputed even within the FBI's own ranks. I've read the background materials, and uh, there's something terribly wrong. What is the real truth behind the Oklahoma City bombing? It's not the job of the FBI to disprove negatives or conspiracy theories. So the question is, is the mastermind still out there? after Timothy McVeigh's execution, four hijacked planes put every previous terrorist attack in a stark new perspective. Was there a single thread that tied them all together? Are James Woolsey, CIA director from February 1993 to January 1995, believes that the Oklahoma City bombing was part of a broader terrorist campaign against the United States? Groups that have been uh, accustomed to putting together truck bombs in the Middle East might have been involved. We're in a war uh, with Islamist organizations that I think will last decades, and we need to learn from what has happened in the past. William Jasper, senior editor of the conservative journal The New American, shares this viewpoint, having investigated the Oklahoma City attack for many years. Prior to the Oklahoma City bombing, we don't have any prior history in the U.S. of any kind of bomb of this magnitude except for the World Trade Center bombing. And that was a Middle Eastern operation. The first World Trade Center bombing in 1993, the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, and subsequent events including the Tanzania embassy bombing uh, the USS Cole and ultimately the 9-11 attacks 
are all connected. At 9.02 a.m. on Wednesday the 19th of April 1995, a powerful truck bomb detonated outside the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. The explosion punched through the front of the nine-story structure, collapsing each floor, one on top of the other. When we first arrived on the scene, we were already told there was probably a, a terrorist act. Our first, the first leads that came out uh, was that there might have been some Middle Eastern people involved. Half a dozen eyewitnesses reported having seen Middle Eastern-looking men near the Murrah building immediately before and after the blast. A bulletin was then broadcast to the Oklahoma City Police and the FBI. The first witness gave a sworn affidavit describing two males of possible Arab descent who were seen running from the area of the federal building towards a dark Chevrolet truck. Both were said to be about six feet tall with athletic builds. The two men then sped off around 9 a.m., just prior to the blast. A second witness, four blocks away, went on to report a near-fatal encounter with the same individuals just moments after the blast. The woman who uh, was stepping out onto the street when a pickup truck, the one that was mentioned in the APB for the suspects, uh, went racing by. She was almost run over. The witness filed a report with the FBI but did not want her name revealed on television. I got a really good look at the driver. Um, he was a Middle Eastern man, and he looked like he was around late 20s, thir early 30s. I could tell he was looking me straight in the eyes. Despite these first-hand accounts, the FBI abruptly terminated the bulletin for the Middle Eastern suspects at 4.30 p.m. that same day. It was a reversal that confused some agents on the ground. How do five or six people, you know, see something and then describe generally the same thing if it doesn't exist? By now, police had discovered the charred rear axle of the truck used to transport the explosive device. They were able to find that that truck had been sold to Ryder Rental, that Ryder Rental had sent it to Elliott's Body Shop in Junction City, that evening, FBI agents interviewed Eldon Elliott, owner of Elliott's Body Shop, and his two employees, Vicki Beamer and Tom Kessinger. They recalled a man named Robert Kling, renting a 20-foot rider truck from their shop after 4 p.m. on Monday the 17th of April. Kling had been accompanied by an unidentified male. As neither man's identity had been established, they refer to them as John Doe's. You had John Doe 1, Robert Kling, the person that uh, rented the truck, and someone with him named John Doe 2, a shorter man, stocky, with a tattoo, olive-complected. Through handwriting analysis and eyewitness identification, investigators would later conclude that John Doe 1 was Timothy McVeigh. FBI sketches of the two suspects were made public the day after the attack and would match other accounts from the scene of the bombing. One survivor placed John Doe number two directly at the Murrah Federal Building with the rider truck just seconds before the blast. She later testified to this at trial under oath. Dana Bradley was inside the Murrah Building 
She was looking out the window at the street and uh, witnessed a young man who she described uh, matching John Doe number two. She saw him get out of the uh, passenger side of the truck and go around to the back, do something in the back of the truck, and then walk up the street. In total, ten witnesses reported seeing Timothy McVeigh together with other accomplices in the area of the Murrah building that morning. These are straightforward people who have given a number of affidavits, and a number of them uh, coincide with respect to the appearance of uh, uh, one or more uh, Mideastern males. Nevertheless, by the 20th of May, the FBI had terminated its manhunt for John Doe II, a decision made four weeks after Gulf War veteran Timothy McVeigh had been arrested and charged with the bombing. We were just told, don't cover any more leads on John Doe, uh, no explanation of why, or we had no idea, you didn't ask. I mean, you were told by the Bureau, you, you do things and you just do it. Authorities would later contend that the owner of Elliot's body shop and his employees all had faulty memories. The FBI rejected the existence of John Doe too altogether, claiming that McVeigh alone had rented the rider truck 48 hours prior to the bombing. The body shop witnesses, however, stood by their original accounts. We're talking about something that happened two days ago. This is a small town with limited number of transactions, and each of them said, there are two of them. Well, if there are two of them, that's not what the Bureau wanted to hear. While the FBI denied the existence of a John Doe II, lawyer Stephen Jones believes top officials continued to pursue him. The government, he says, knowingly obscured the truth about a conspiracy much larger than it was willing to admit. They were still sending out cables, they were still conducting interviews, they were still trying to find who John Doe II was. Of course there was a John Doe II. On the 19th of April 1995, rescue teams descended on the devastated Murrah building in Oklahoma City. As they dug for survivors, federal agents interviewed witnesses for leads. At least ten people described one or more Middle Eastern-looking suspects in the vicinity of the blast. The number of eyewitnesses puts the burden of proof on those who uh, said at the time and say now that uh, there was no foreign involvement of any kind. The next day, investigators concluded that the suspect known as John Doe No. 1, also known as Robert Kling, was 26-year-old Gulf War veteran Timothy McVeigh. And that McVeigh was imprisoned in Perry, Oklahoma, 65 miles north of Oklahoma City. He'd been pulled over an hour and a half after the bombing for driving without a registration plate and then arrested for carrying a concealed weapon. When the FBI took McVeigh into custody, the hunt for the other suspects abruptly changed course. That's when the focus stopped from the Middle Eastern connection into the militia groups and uh, his connections. So after that, I mean, like blinders were put on. Two days later, McVeigh's friend Terry Nichols surrendered, yet he had a solid alibi for the morning of the bombing. Meanwhile, the search for John Doe number two continued until FBI officials announced on the 20th of May that he never existed in the first place. The public position of the FBI was McVeigh and Nichols. 
nobody else. Almost three weeks after the bombing, Stephen Jones, an Oklahoma lawyer, was appointed to represent Timothy McVeigh. Jones says that the government search for John Doe number two continued in secret for another month. Then it stopped. Why? They realized that they were helping McVeigh. They were creating exculpatory documents. Documents that would either raise question about McVeigh's involvement or at a minimum the level of his involvement and the possibility of others. Thank you. Jones doesn't dispute McVeigh's complicity in the bombing, but he rejects the notion that McVeigh and Nichols were the masterminds. Prior to the Murrah building blast, the only experience that either man had with bombs was considered feeble at best. In fact, McVeigh's friends, Michael and Laurie Fortier, would later testify that he was totally inept at bomb making and incapable of handling any advanced explosives. McVeigh took him out in the desert in October of 94 to experiment with blowing up with an ammonia nitrate bomb, and it fizzled. Six months later, according to government's theory, this is Tim McVeigh, the mastermind bomb maker. Jones doubts that these two unemployed, untrained drifters could have pulled off such an elaborate and deadly terrorist attack without any outside help. Two young men who have no experience in explosives are able to get several thousand pounds of ammonia nitrate fertilizer, nitromethane rocket fuel, blasting caps, but then they have to assemble it in fairly secure secret conditions, but then in short order ignite it and it work perfectly. The attack, it was noticed, bore some resemblances to the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, an operation executed by Islamic terrorists. In a newspaper editorial of the 21st of April 1995, Vincent Canistraro, former CIA chief of counterterrorism, wrote that both attacks employed similar bombs, rider trucks loaded with a mixture of fertilizer and nitroglycerin or nitromethane. More tellingly, Canistraro argued the bombers in both cases made critical mistakes that led to their capture. In the case of the 1993 World Trade Center attack, the plot's organizer had arranged to flee the country. The person that planned the attack, Ramsey Yosef, flew out of New York City the afternoon of World Trade Center 1 and disappeared. Canistrero said, well, you've got the same thing here. You've got two lonely drifters, allegedly, not very smart. They rent a rider truck, they use ammonia nitrate, they get caught. So the question is, is the mastermind still out there? Canistraro now accepts the U.S. government's conclusions. But reporter William Jasper believes that McVeigh and Nichols were the support cell for Middle Eastern masterminds who escaped. They're both white males. Uh, both had served in the military. Al-Qaeda recognized would help tremendously to have people that wouldn't fit the profile of uh, Middle Eastern background. If McVeigh and Nichols were the willing foot soldiers in a foreign terrorist plot, then who supplied the funding, training and logistics to make the Oklahoma City bombing possible? William Jasper suggests that Terry Nichols had ties to Al-Qaeda. 
that Nichols met Islamic terrorists, including Al-Qaeda operatives, in the Philippines. These foreign ties would have given the disaffected American exactly the type of bond-making expertise that he and McVeigh needed. The key individuals who were involved in and were prosecuted for the World Trade Center bombing were all meeting with Terry Nichols there in the Philippines. Based on his passport records, the FBI discovered that Terry Nichols made at least five trips to the Philippines between 1990 and 1995. The reason, allegedly, was that he was looking for a Filipino bride. He found one. The 35-year-old farmhand acquired a 19-year-old wife, Marife Torres, through an illegal mail-order bride service. They married in November 1990, and even though Marafei became pregnant by another man, Nichols brought her back to the United States. He did it because it wasn't important, because that's not the reason he was in the Philippines. Jones believes that Nichols used the marriage as a cover for his real mission, to learn bomb-making from Islamic terrorists. Over the following years, Nichols returned alone to the Philippines several times. And according to a Filipino police source, Nichols had ties to the Abu Sayyaf, a Muslim terrorist cell financed by Al-Qaeda. The Al-Qaeda connection to uh, Abu Sayyaf has come primarily through uh, Ramzi Yosef and his uncle, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was identified as the mastermind of the 9-11 attacks. In 1996, Philippine authorities cracked down on the Abu Sayyaf and arrested one of its reputed co-founders, Edwin Angeles. He broke under torture and began giving information on the Abu Sayyaf. Then later he began uh, cooperating uh, regularly with the uh, Philippines police. Angeles confessed that in the early 1990s, he met Ramzi Youssef and two other Al-Qaeda members on a small island in the Philippines. Youssef and these same two associates would later be convicted of a conspiracy to blow up 12 American jetliners in January 1995, a plot codenamed Bojinka, that never in fact came to fruition. The Bojinka plot, that was really the, the basis for the attack in 2001 on the, on the World Trade Center. In November 1996, McVeigh's defense attorney, Stephen Jones, sent lawyers to the Philippines to interview Edwin Angeles in police custody. And for the first time I heard the name Osama bin Laden, Ramsey Yosef, the full story. And I remember thinking, my God, what have we uncovered here? Angeles also revealed that a fourth man was present at the meeting with Ramsey Yusuf, a white American who introduced himself as the farmer. For Jones, the link was clear. Terry Nichols had made a living as a Kansas farmhand. The first thing that we did was ask him to draw a picture of the man that he described as the farmer. And he drew a picture that um, resembled Nichols. According to Angeles, the purpose of the meeting with Youssef and Nichols was to discuss training in the making and handling of bombs. Through Philippine intelligence records, Jones established a three-month period from November 1994 to January 1995 when Terry Nichols and Ramsey Youssef were both visiting the same university campus in Cebu City.
Nicole's wife, Mara Faye, was studying at Southwestern College, a campus where Youssef was known to recruit new terrorists. Mara Faye herself stated that it was her husband's idea for her to study there. Is everything a coincidence? Why the coincidences all lead one way? Jones argues that by cultivating ties with foreign sponsors, Nichols developed the expertise necessary to blow up a nine-story building. That's why he went to the Philippines. The Oklahoma City bombing was a sophisticated device. Oklahoma City was simply a preview of what would be coming. April 1996, a year after Timothy McVeigh bombed the Oklahoma City Federal Building, McVeigh's defense attorney, Stephen Jones, was amassing evidence of what he argues was a huge conspiracy. A plot that stretched all the way to the Philippines involving Islamic terrorists, including Al-Qaeda. But local newspaper reporter J.D. Cash was pursuing another terrorist connection closer to home. Cash was investigating a neo-Nazi group called the Aryan Republican Army that had possible ties to Timothy McVeigh. I made some inquiries to the Stephen Jones defense team and I was wanting to sit down with him and just share our notes. Cash discovered that Stephen Jones also had been digging into McVeigh's neo-Nazi connections. After the Gulf War, McVeigh was deeply immersed in the survivalist subculture and even joined the Ku Klux Klan. Cash's investigation took him deep into the heartland of America's white supremacist movement. Eastern Oklahoma, 1993. A 400-acre compound named Elohim City, just six miles from the Arkansas border home to more than 100 followers of Christian identity, a religion that promotes Aryans as God's chosen race. Since the tragedies at Waco and Ruby Ridge, Elohim City had become a breeding ground for homegrown revolutionaries. Members of the Ku Klux Klan and the Aryan Republican Army, or ARA, all took refuge there. They even had an ongoing paramilitary training program there where they built bunkers and they had uh, target practice uh, and uh, even attempted to acquire some uh, uh, chemical or biological weapons. In the spring of 1993, a German citizen named Andreas Karl Strassmeier was chief of security at the compound. Also known as Andy the German, Strassmeier boasted of serving in the German special forces and claimed his grandfather was a founding member of the Nazi party. They realize that Andy has all of this tremendous military training and is very gung-ho. And so what they start doing is sending their young skinheads to Elohim City. And so what we have in eastern Oklahoma is in effect during the early 90s to the mid-90s is the largest terrorist training camp in, in the United States. It was about this time that Strassmeyer met unemployed Gulf War veteran Timothy McVeigh at a gun show where Strassmeyer gave him his business card. Six months later, McVeigh received a speeding ticket 20 miles from Elohim City. 
That same week, McVeigh and Terry Nichols registered at a Fayetteville, Arkansas motel while ARA leaders were in town planning an armored truck heist. How can you have McVeigh in the Aryan Republican Army in the same place on the same date at the same time and call that a coincidence? We had a source in law enforcement who was conducting surveillance at Elohim City. He told me that Tim McVeigh had been to Elohim City on 12 to 20 times over the years. McVeigh, who once worked as an armored truck driver, may have joined his ARA friends in one of their favorite pursuits, bank robbing. He sent a letter to his sister Jennifer saying that he'd found a, quote, a new network of friends to work with. It is well known that he at one time passed her several uh, $100 bills, and he said that those were from a bank robbery he helped plan. J.D. Cash believes that McVeigh was involved in a September 1994 ARA holdup in Overland Park, Kansas. Witnesses provided a sketch of him. You look at it, there's no question it's McVeigh. Tim McVeigh happens to be there in that part of Kansas, staying at, at uh, Terry Nichols' place. By January 1995, three months before the Oklahoma City bombing, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms had received several warnings. 23-year-old informant Carol Howe reported that something big was brewing at Elohim City. In these reports, it says these guys are planning to go to war. And when you read these reports, you know that trouble's coming. According to Howe, Andrea Strassmeyer and his followers were planning to take direct actions and operations such as assassinations, bombings, and mass shootings. Howe allegedly wrote a report in December 1994 that Strassmeyer was threatening to blow up federal buildings in Oklahoma City and Tulsa. Today, however, this report is missing. It was clear that this woman was at the heart of a conspiracy that had warned the government that this was coming. But if a witness had already told the ATF about the paramilitary training at Elohim City, why didn't agents act? The FBI sort of told the ATF, stay out of Elohim City. The FBI was seriously considering a raid on Elohim City. Did turf battles between two federal agencies create an opportunity for the terrorists? As one ex-FBI agent told me, he said, you know, uh, what makes this one unusual, this turf war, is 168 people lost. On the 21st of April, 1995, two days after the Oklahoma City bombing, Carol Howe told officials she saw a man resembling John Doe One at Elohim City and later claimed this man was Timothy McVeigh. McVeigh's telephone call records substantiate his links to Elohim City. Two weeks prior to the bombing, at 1.46 p.m. on the 5th of April, McVeigh phoned the compound from a motel room in Kingman, Arizona, and asked for Andy the German. Moments earlier, McVeigh had called the Ryder Truck Rental Agency to reserve the vehicle that he would use in the terrorist attack. Even McVeigh told me. He called Elohim City to see if after he bombed the Murrah building, he could come there. That's a staggering admission. It means he knew them. He was one of them. 
Jones further contends that McVeigh and Nichols were receiving support from two widely divergent groups that both shared one important ideological link. That the ties McVeigh had to white supremacists and the alleged ties that Terry Nichols had to Islamic extremists are not mutually exclusive. The neo-Nazi right and the radical Islamic Muslim fundamentalists have one overriding thing in common, anti-Semitism. The United States is the strongest foreign power which supports Israel. Many of these neo-Nazi groups have received uh, significant sums of money from uh, regimes like uh, uh, Gaddafi's regime or, or actual uh, terrorist groups like the PLO. By April 1997, Jones was prepared to defend his client in one of the highest profile federal cases in American history. Jones believed he could tie McVeigh to a far-flung network of both foreign terrorists and domestic revolutionaries, throwing doubt on the government's claim that McVeigh alone detonated the bomb in Oklahoma City. Meanwhile, the government had marshaled its own evidence. Prosecutor Larry Mackey would argue there was no reliable proof of any wider conspiracy, either in the States or abroad. Everyone on the prosecution team and the investigation team woke up every morning asking the question, have we got everybody who's criminally responsible? On the 10th of August, 1995, a federal grand jury indicted Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols for conspiracy to commit mass murder. The indictment also implicated others unknown in the crime. To many, the wording of the indictment suggests that the government believed that the conspiracy went beyond McVeigh and Nichols. Danny Deffenbaugh, lead investigator for the FBI, says that wasn't the case. The government's going to put and others unknown at that time because the investigation's continuing. The investigation would last for nearly three years. By its own account, the FBI pursued more than 43,000 leads. Most went nowhere, including supposed sightings of the mysterious John Doe number two. The FBI sketches of John Doe one and two were based on the memory of a single witness a mechanic at Elliot's body shop where McVeigh had rented the ride of truck. The FBI later concluded that the mechanic and his co-workers had confused two separate visits by similar customers on Monday the 17th and Tuesday the 18th of April 1995. On Monday, Tim McVeigh came in alone and rented the bomb truck. And on Tuesday, about the same time in the afternoon, but 24 hours later, two men, also like McVeigh, military-like in look, came in and rented a truck. And so that began, uh, you know, the origin of John Doe 2. Hello. Hi. How Federal are you prosecutors well, argue that the John Doe sketches reflected a flawed recollection of events and insist that they vigorously pursued every possible lead. Uh, a lot of people were seeing Tim McVeigh everywhere they went, but all of those uh, leads were run down. Investigators contend that many eyewitness accounts may have been accurate, but not relevant. Kate McCauley, who later served as a researcher on the McVeigh and Nichols legal teams, feels there are perfectly reasonable explanations for leads that at first seemed sinister. Somebody may have seen a Middle Eastern guy jogging. I may have seen a Middle Eastern guy almost hit me on the corner. And all of these things may be true. 
Uh, I think in the aftermath of the bombing, I think people were running in all different directions. The FBI also dismissed McVeigh's ties to the Aryan Republican Army and the revolutionaries at Elohim City. One of the biggest theories, of course, is with regard to an individual by the name of Andy Strassmeyer, who was at Elohim City at the time that McVeigh made a call in trying to find him. One call into Elohim City doesn't make you a member of Elohim City. There are people who say that his whereabouts are not known prior to and after various bank robberies that the Aryan Republican Army uh, perpetrated. Uh, in reality, he's working in Arizona. He's not robbing a bank in Green Bay. The government also investigated Terry Nichols' alleged partnership with terrorists in the Philippines and found no evidence of such a conspiracy. We could never find any nexus or association with terrorists. The defense spent a large amount of the U.S. dollars to go around the world to try to find these conspirators and others unknown. And there was the opportunity to prove that theory. It didn't come forward. As the McVeigh trial opened in April 1997, Larry Mackey and his fellow prosecutors argued that the defendant had the means, the opportunity, and the motive. The most powerful physical evidence was taken during an FBI raid on Terry Nichols' Kansas home three days after the bombing. Inside the Nichols residence was a whole host of items, not the least of which was a, um, a receipt documenting the purchase of a ton of ammonia nitrate, a fertilizer, that can be used in building explosive devices and bearing a fingerprint of uh, Tim McVeigh. The FBI raid also yielded a telephone calling card purchased by Nichols under an assumed name. By tracing the card and the activity in the card, you could trace their whereabouts, proving exactly where they were and with whom they were. According to Mackey, the phone card records detail their cross-country trips to purchase bomb-making components like fertilizer and nitromethane fuel. The evidence provided no clear links between McVeigh, Nichols and other conspirators, besides Michael Fortier, an army friend in Kingman, Arizona, who helped them traffic firearms for money. Intuitively, there is something that says, certainly in my mind, on April 19th, this had to be the result of something foreign and secretive and well-financed, and the sad truth it wasn't. It's scary how uh, easy it is for anyone, Tim McVeigh and Terry Nichols, uh, to find the recipe to build a device that can take down a nine-story building, kill everyone inside, but that's exactly what they did. Finally, prosecutors offered evidence of motive when Michael Fortier testified that McVeigh had expressed a desire to avenge the civilian deaths at the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas, two years earlier. McVeigh, by his own mouth, says he wanted to blow up the Oklahoma City Federal Building because that's where the order to launch the attack at Waco, Texas, uh, had taken place. He was wrong, but that was his rationale. The government's case convinced the jurors, and on the 2nd of June 1997, they found Timothy McVeigh guilty of mass murder. However, former CIA director R. James Woolsey claimed that the U.S. government had left too many questions unanswered. Prosecutors were focused on convicting McVeigh rather than probing murkier issues of possible foreign involvement. 
prosecutors want uh, simple, straightforward cases. They don't want to go in with a very, very complicated case involving foreign entanglements that might or might not be there. For example, in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing trial, federal prosecutors successfully convicted six men in the attack but failed to identify the operation's ultimate sponsor, Al-Qaeda. Woolsey cautions that in a post-9-11 world, there's too much at stake not to re-examine the Oklahoma City bombing for possible foreign ties. I think there's a prima facie case for a thorough investigation of the sort that was not really done uh, the first time around. McVeigh's conviction did little to ease public suspicion. A June 2001 poll showed that 65% of Americans still didn't accept the government's conclusion that only three men were behind the attack. Many fear that other perpetrators remain at large. McVeigh's lawyer, Stephen Jones, believes the most significant aspect of McVeigh's trial was not what the prosecution presented, but what it excluded, most specifically, eyewitnesses. Each of whom could say, I saw Tim McVeigh in that truck, I saw Tim McVeigh get out of that truck. But they would also have had to say, he was not alone. However, Jones himself never called these witnesses to testify because, he says, they would have placed McVeigh directly at the crime scene, guaranteeing his client a guilty verdict. Also excluded from the trial was testimony by informant Carol Howe, who claimed she had given the government prior warning of a terrorist plot. She had told the ATF of her great concerns about what these people at L.A.M. City were planning on doing, bombing federal property, federal buildings, and murdering federal employees. The judge barred Howe from testifying, and jurors never heard her name in court. Prosecutors assert that her testimony was unreliable. Uh, there was a long evidentiary hearing, and the judge concluded that she could not be believed. In July 1997, a group of private citizens established the Oklahoma Bombing Investigation Committee to conduct their own probe. The committee hired Kate McCauley, at the time an archive researcher, to pursue a wider conspiracy. We followed a lot of people who maybe didn't make it to mainstream, maybe the FBI didn't pay attention to their story, uh, trying to bring together anything that might have been missed. She finally arrived back to square one and in support of the government's case. Little by little, like a house of cards, it started to fall. I came back to the same place where I started, but it took five, six, seven years to get there. But the bombing investigation committee rejected her conclusions. They did not want to hear it. There was just this core emotional belief that would not go away, and I think the committee reflected a lot of people in Oklahoma City. On the 11th of May, 2001, five days before Timothy McVeigh's scheduled execution, a public admission by the FBI inspired fresh charges of a cover-up. Attorney General John Ashcroft announced that back in 1997, the Bureau had failed to release more than 4,000 documents to McVeigh's defense team. I know many Americans will question why. When I saw that and heard about that, I thought, my God, what is going on here? The controversy forced McVeigh's execution to be postponed. But Danny Deffenbaugh strongly denies any wrongdoing. In fact, he's the agent who revealed the existence of these documents. If we 
are going to try to hide something, why in the world would I then bring this forward? Still, several former FBI agents continue to express doubts about the investigation. Among them is former special agent Rick Ojeda, who traced links between the white supremacists at Elohim City and the bombing. He says his report never made it to the defense lawyers. My initial reaction was that, you know, just somebody screwed up. But then when I heard that there were more and more documents withheld, and it looks more like a pattern as opposed to just a little mistake. It's something very sinister. There needs to be a full and complete independent investigation of uh, the Oklahoma City bombing case and how it was handled by the, by the government. But the man who headed the investigation questions these agents' motives. When you get employees that besmirch their own agency, shame on them. There's a hidden agenda. Just one month after the newly released documents had made headlines, a federal judge found no reason to reconsider the jury's verdict and ordered the execution to proceed. On the 11th of June, McVeigh was put to death by lethal injection at a federal prison in Indiana. To the end, he maintained that he alone was the bomber. Stephen Jones asserts that McVeigh had a mission to enable Nichols and others unknown to continue waging war against the U.S. government. Tim McVeigh was a terrorist. He did not hide from that. When I told him that Terry Nichols might be acquitted, he said to me, good, the revolution can continue. Nichols' lawyers have argued that their client was framed and that those mysterious others unknown are the real conspirators. In April 2004, at Nichols' trial, a Secret Service agent testified about a document describing surveillance video of the Murrah building prior to the blast. A Secret Service log dated the 24th and 25th of April 1995 indicates that a security camera captured more than one person leaving the rider truck as it was parked outside the Murrah building. The actual videotape, however, is missing. The Secret Service individuals who said they could come forward with these items were never able to be able to come forward to them. You know why? Because they didn't exist. The Secret Service testimony had little impact at Nichols' Oklahoma trial. On the 26th of May 2004, he was convicted and sentenced to 161 consecutive life terms. Terry Nichols could not give an interview up until now because while you have a trial hanging over your head, it's not a good time to be out talking to the media. Now he probably should be thinking about getting the American people to understand that there were other people involved. For some, the Oklahoma City bombing is a closed chapter in American history. But for others, there are still perpetrators at large waiting to strike again. We had promises from our government officials that no stone would be left unturned, that every piece of evidence would be examined. We are going to reap the whirlwind for allowing these loose ends to go unresolved. I can understand how the general public is confused by the conspiracies. There was nothing, and they had a terrible time accepting the fact that something so simple could have caused so much devastation. If there's others unknown, and there is evidence, I'm sure that the FBI will reopen the investigation. Why did the government not wrap up the rest of these people? When all of the witnesses say, we saw these people, 
Why did the government not pursue this? It's a mystery. What's up, Dave? Yo. Okay, so today, and the continuation of what would be... The Star Wars trilogy. Not one... <laughs> no. <laughs> not one giant podcast, but three that kind of lead one thing to the next, mm-hmm. all ending with the Oklahoma City bombing, which is what we're talking about today. And the connection between all of these is... Timothy McVeigh. Not that he was involved in Ruby Ridge or Waco, our previous two episodes, but that Timothy McVeigh... Those two things kind of, according to his... Provoked his desires to say, fuck it. Fuck the government, fuck the free world. The official story. 313, bitches. Yeah, so he was (laughs) pissed, he was was outraged by what happened at Ruby Ridge. Mm -hmm. He was a protester and selling anti-government bumper stickers and things at Waco. Two years later, Oklahoma City bombing happens... He and his uh, army friend, Terry Nichols, um, according to the official story, put together this bomb on the back of a rider truck, parked it outside the, uh, uh, what was the fucking name of the building? Murrah. Murrah. Yeah, the the Murrah building. I don't know if they called it Murrah, or I think they called it the Murray or Murrah. I think it's Murrah. The Murrah building and the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City. And... Boom. Uh, now, what was in that building, what the target was, supposedly, according to the visual story, was that, and, and I think McVeigh kind of said this after he'd been arrested and mm-hmm. all this shit, the reason that that building was a target was because the, the was it the ATF agents? ATF, yep. Or the, the office that gave the go-ahead at Waco to set the fucking place, or, you know, tear gas and all mm-hmm. that shit, the orders came from that office in that building. Correct. In addition, the U.S. Marshals had an office in there. There's the a, FBI had FBI, there's a whole bunch there. of stuff. There was a lot of government yeah. offices there, yeah. Good times. Um, yes. I think FEMA was there also. Yeah, FEMA. Um, Just a whole bunch of fuck ton of yeah. government offices at that Oklahoma so, City bombing. Yeah, let's see here. Um, basically, Timothy McVeigh cited the Waco incident as a primary motivation for the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, it was on the same day, too. Yeah, April 19th, 1950, or 1995, not 55, a truck bomb attack that destroyed the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. Um, it destroyed or damaged numerous other buildings in the vicinity. The attack claimed 168 lives, including 19 children under the age of 6, and left over 600 injured in the deadliest act of terrorism on U.S. soil prior to the September 11th attacks. And, of 20, and as of 2017, it remains the deadliest act of domestic terrorism in American history. Within days after the bombing, McVeigh and Terry Nichols both were both in custody for their roles in the bombing of Waco, Oh, bomb, and, uh, sorry, I, I jumped a fucking, I skipped a whole line. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rose of their bombing, period. Mm-hmm. Investigator, investigators determined that the two were both sympathizers of an anti-government militia movement and that their motive was to avenge the government's handling of the 
Waco and Ruby Ridge incidents. McVeigh mm-hmm. testified that he chose the date of April 19th because it is the second anniversary of the deadly fire at Mount Carmel, which was Waco. Uh, in March 1993, McVeigh drove from Arizona to Waco in order to observe the federal standoff. Along with other protesters, he was photographed by the FBI. A courtroom reporter also claims to have seen McVeigh outside the courthouse at Waco selling anti-government shares and posters. Okay. Cool. So, we're good there. Um, now, the video, or the, I used the audio from the beginning of this, you were on a... You, I haven't seen yet. You, you weren't seen that. As of release time, I have seen yeah, it, but yeah, as of during right now, the, recording time right now, uh, I have not seen it. Right. As And you watched your own bunch of stuff. I watched that and some other things, and we also had the official story and, and all this stuff. So... Uh, Dave, so briefly before we started recording, we're uh, on kind of different theory pages. This is a, yeah. a rare occasion yeah. in, because normally we would present a thing and we're pretty much in agreement. Not that you will disagree or I'll disagree, but it, it's there's there's could be other sides to this, right? And I and I only know the official story side. I haven't done as much research as you did because, like I said in the last podcast, as I was kind of in. Watching all three of them, the Waco one is the one that kind of really fascinated more. So, mm-hmm. even though this is the one that started everything, I just kept going back and back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for for what I know to be true is just the uh, the official story that you know Tim McVeigh and his buddy Terry Nichols put this together. Terry Nichols backed out at the last second, um, or at least a day or two before. I can't remember exactly the time frame, but uh, Timmy Boy drove the rider drop uh, drop van up. Dropped it off and took off, walked uh, half a block, and once he got out of the sight, he jogged the rest of the way to his car, took off. Um, I don't, as of right now... That's I, the official story. I don't see any reason to deny that from what I've and seen. And McVeigh claims that's exactly what happened. Correct. Uh, what the uh, official story is, and yeah. we say the official. So, so well, now, 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 without knowing what you just played for the, the listeners, uh, give me your side of the things. Okay, well, first, uh, let's. I want to talk about a few pieces of this. Terry Nichols. Your your perception of Terry Nichols? He was he was all gung ho to make these bombs with Timothy McVeigh and all this shit, but then right at the last minute he decided, oh, I don't, I, I didn't really think this was like we were actually going to blow something up. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, but they both have made several uh, trips across country. Like he was. How, how do you be in it? And then last, I mean, I guess last week get cold, last minute get cold feet, basically. Well, is what happened with Terry. It Nichols, could be right? like a lot of the things that, like sometimes, like going out with your friends, it's all fun and games until it actually happens. You know, yeah, we, and you're like, oh, when I was right. in high school, we talked about like breaking into cars and stealing shit. Right. Like, yeah, that's right. Cool. Like, oh, Let's oh, do sorry. this. Let's go break into cars and steal shit. And then, then it comes time to do it. it. You're like, oh fuck! I, I I thought we were just talking shit. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do that, but now I don't really want to do that. Right? You know, it could have been one of those things where it was all cool. Like, yeah, this, we're gonna do this. Just he thought maybe in my mind, for what I've seen, Terry Nichols was like, yeah, we're gonna do this, but really, he never really thought it was gonna get that far. It was a great idea. He be- he believed it, and then at the at that point when Tim and Faye says, "Yep, I got the rider truck. I'm going to go right now. We're gonna put this together. Here's the schematics. I already know how to do it. We're doing it." And he's like. Yeah, yeah about that. maybe not. Um, I'm going to wash my tights and maybe jerk off to some gay midget porn today. So <laughs> go ahead and go do your thing. Have fun. So what else you do know? you know about Terry Nichols? That's all I know about that's him. That's all man. you know. Yeah, okay. I, that's all I really know about him, man. Well, 
he had been watched over a period of time. He had made, uh, where the fuck was it now? Um, here's the thing. When we record this, the, the shit that is played at the beginning, mm-hmm. I watched, but not literally seconds before we hit record. Right, right, right. watched it a few days ago. I think it was, just, uh, hang on, maybe I just need to pull up Terry Nichols. Yeah, pull who's that? Just thought? so I can remember, Terry Nichols had traveled um, over to, it was like Cambodia or something like that. One of these like Asian things. Let's see here. Columbia. Philippines. Okay. Okay. He he had he had tra- traveled to the Philippines numerous occasions. Uh, now he- here's where the now so he had been kind of been watched with these trips. They you know obviously when you leave the country with your passport, they know where you're going, how mm-hmm. long you've been there, when you return, all this shit. Uh, Terry Nichols claimed each trip to the Philippines was to. It was part of a process of getting a mail-order bride, basically. Mm-hmm. There's suspicions, though, that that's not entirely true. He did marry a 17-year-old woman from the Philippines. Okay. But the other suspicions are that when he was over there, he was meeting with Al-Qaeda uh, people. Right. People within Al-Qaeda to... Because he, what they suspect was that he was basically, he had been in the military, but he had, and same thing with McVeigh, McVeigh was in the military, mm-hmm. they, both of these guys had kind of, they dis, they disagreed with our, our philosophy in war, so they'd kind of turned, and, and, but more so with Terry Nichols, that he had kind of like, he became what what you call like a double agent. He was an American. He, he gave the illusion that he was on the American side, but it was actually working for the other side. Okay. So that these Al Qaeda guys had kind of influenced him, and 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 he was kind of the mind that helped Tim McVeigh plan this fucking Oklahoma City bombing. This was part of a series of bombings because you remember in 1993, the original bombing at the World Trade Center. Mm-hmm. Remember that. Mm-hmm. So that, Oklahoma City, and then eventually 9-11, and there were others, uh, some warships that had been bombed all by Al-Qaeda, at least they claimed all these. These were all in a giant, bigger plot series of attacks against the United States. That's this this other side. Mm-hmm. So, uh, on top of that, so that's the t- Terry Nichols thing. Okay. So I find it odd right at the last minute that he would get out. Mm-hmm. Unless there was reason to, if you want to believe the whole Al Qaeda side, uh, it kind of makes sense. Well, but at the, the same whole... time, the other theory, well, yeah, we're talking shit. Now we're actually going to do it. Well, fuck that, you know. But he was part of obtaining all the stuff for it too. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the whole "I'm stepping away," it's I'm a pussy, and maybe his whole thing wasn't to, you know, actually be a part of the. Delivering the bomb. His part was to get, set, set, it, this, it, set, set this Tim McVeigh guy up to be the guy to do it. Uh, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He was kind of the mastermind. The mastermind never fucking 
is right there, though. He's kind of set back. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, but yet, the true mastermind was somebody in Al-Qaeda. Maybe. Maybe. Now, uh, let's see. So, without going further with that, what... Uh, okay, so how, how do you want to go about move forward, then, in this? Well... Because I'm going to add to the Al-Qaeda thing as we go. Well, let's start with... Wow, I'm, I'm lost now, because now I'm really curious about the whole Al-Qaeda and Terry Nichols thing. Um, well, where was he from? Where was uh, Tim McVeigh from originally? Where where did he drive to Oklahoma to go? Alright, hang on here. So let's do... Okay, so he was... He joined military at age of 20. Graduated from the U.S. Army Infantry School at Fort Benning, Georgia. Um, he purchased a... Uh, he was reprimanded by the military for purchasing a white power t-shirt from a Ku Klux Klan protest. It's uh, kind of funny. Well, um, how could he be reprimanded if if you read up? Yeah. Because there was black servicemen who wore black power t-shirts. They should have been reprimanded, too. Yeah, so, I mean, he, it's only fair. Um you're all supposed to be on the same fucking team. Mm-hmm. Um, about what about camouflage power? Yeah, <laughs> or any other kind of color. Mm-hmm. Flower. Power, flower, flower, power. Um, there you go. Post military. Um, let's see. I'm trying to see where he was claimed while visiting friends in Decker, Michigan. McVeigh complained that the army had implanted a microchip into his buttocks. So that the government could keep track of him. The rumor originated in the army boot camp where the soldiers received a painful injection in their buttocks. McVeigh dug around and discovered that it was only an immunity booster and that the painful reaction of the body was normal. However, amused by the rumor, he later chose to spread it for fun and finding that people believed him furthered his anti-government propaganda. McVeigh worked long hours in a dead-end job and felt that he did not have a home. He sought romance, but his advances were rejected by a co-worker, and he felt nervous around women. He believed that he bought too much, brought too much pain to his loved ones. He grew angry and frustrated at his difficulties in finding a girlfriend. He took up obsessive gambling, unable to pay back his gambling debts. He took a cash advance and then defaulted on his repayments. He then began looking for a state without heavy government regulation or high taxes. He became enraged when the government told him that he had been overpaid $1,058 while in the Army, and he had to pay back the money. Well, that would piss me off, too. It's your fuck-up. Sorry, mm-hmm. it's mine now. In an angry letter to the government inviting the, he oh, he wrote an angry letter to the government inviting them to, go ahead, take everything I own, take my dignity, feel good as you grow fat and rich at my expense, sucking my tax dollars and property. Nice. So far, not to alert the government, but I feel the same fucking way. Not necessarily by white power and all this shit, but mm. how they fucking yeah feel good as you grow fat and rich at my expense, sucking my tax dollars and property. I agree. Uh, McVeigh introduced his sister to anti-government literature, but his father had little interest in these views. He moved out of his father's house and into an apartment that had no telephone, which had the advantage of making it impossible for his employers to contact for overtime assignments. He also quit the NRA, viewing its stance on gun rights as too weak. Well, wow. NRA is pretty hardcore. Yeah. Right, so then uh, he goes to a bunch of gun shows, seen at the 1993 Waco siege protesting, distributed pro-gun rights literature and bumper stickers. Um, 
Let's see here. <clears throat> Arizona. McVeigh had a road atlas with hand-drawn designations of the most likely places for nuclear attacks and considered buying property in Seligman, Arizona, which he determined to be a nuclear-free zone. McVeigh lived with Michael Fortier in Kingman, Arizona, and they became so close that he served as best man at Fortier's wedding. McVeigh experienced with cannabis, experimented with cannabis and methamphetamine. Oh, he's a meth head. Mm-hmm. Kind of looked like it. But he re- researched <coughs> their effects in the encyclopedia first. Yeah. Yeah, after reason, yeah. However, he was never as interested in drugs as was Fortier. One of the reasons they parted ways was McVeigh's boredom with Fortier's drug habits. I'm just bored with your drug habits, Dave, so we're going to part ways. See you, brother. It's like, it's fucking weird, right? Um, let's see. In April 1993, McVeigh headed for a farm in Michigan where Terry Nichols lived. So this is when he watched the whole Waco thing mm-hmm. and then decided to go down there. Um, Terry, uh, in between watching coverage of the Waco siege on TV, Nichols and his brother began teaching McVeigh how to make explosives out of out of readily available materials. So Terry Nichols was the guy who introduced him to all this. All right. <clears throat> so keep that in mind with the whole Al Qaeda thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, they combine household chemicals and plastic jugs. The destruction of the Waco compound enraged McVeigh and convinced him that it was time to take action. The government's use of CS gas on women and children angered McVeigh. He had been exposed to the gas as part of his military training and was familiar with its, its effects. The disappearance of certain evidence, such as the bullet-riddled steel-reinforced front door to the complex, led him to suspect a cover-up. Um, so basically... Uh, that was kind of the straw that yeah. broke the camel's whore. Yes. Um, trying to... So, after all that shit, uh, McVeigh disassociated himself from his boyhood friend Steve Hodge by sending a 23-page farewell, farewell letter to him. He proclaimed his devotion to the United States Declaration of Independence, explaining in detail what each sentence meant to him. McVeigh declared that... Those who betray or subvert the Constitution are guilty of sedition and or treason, are domestic enemies, and should and will be punished accordingly. It also stands to reason that anyone who sympathizes with the enemy or gives aid or comfort to said enemy is is likewise guilty. I have sworn to uphold and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and I will. And I will because, because not only did I swear to, but I believe in what it stands for in every bit of my heart, soul, and being." I know in my heart that I am right in my struggle, Steve. Uh, I have come to peace with myself, my God, and my cause. Blood will flow in the streets, Steve. Good versus evil, free men versus socialists, wannabe slaves. Pray it is not your blood, my friend. Um, McVeigh felt the need to personally recon... Re- what? Something yeah, of no rumored way. conspiracies. He visited Area 51 in order to defy government restrictions on photography and went to Gulfport, Mississippi to determine the veracity of rumors about United Nations operations. These turned out to be false. The Russians' vehicles on the site were being configured for use in UN-sponsored humanitarian aid efforts. Prove it. (laughs) Around this time, McVeigh and Nichols also began making bulk purchases of ammonium nitrate, an agricultural fertilizer, for resale to survivalists, since rumors were circulating that the government was preparing to ban it. All right, plan against federal building or individuals. McVeigh told Fortier of his plans to blow up a federal building, but Fortier declined to participate. 
Forge also told his wife about the plans. McVeigh composed two letters to the ATF, the first titled Constitutional Defenders and the second ATF Read. Uh, he denounced government officials as fascist tyrants and stormtroopers and warned ATF, all you tyrannical people will swing in the wind one day for your tre- treasonous actions against the Constitution of the United States. Remember the Nuremberg War Trials. Okay. Uh, he's a little off, okay. Dude, he's like, I'm going to write a letter, I'm going to write a letter, I'm going to write a letter. Say everything in my letter. Well, this was back where, like, internet was just well, yeah, kind of starting to become yeah. a thing. Now, everybody's fucking writing letters on uh, Facebook and Twitter. All this shit. Instagram. And, uh... Everybody's I'm mad at you. being offended and a bunch of snowflakes and safe rooms and cry rooms right. and fucking pussy gatherings and all this bullshit. So, but, I think this guy had more fucking cojones than uh, a lot of these snowflakes. Um, let's see here. Wow. He really, read that up there. Um, this is what he said to the uh, the people that lost to the victims of Oklahoma City bombing. This is what Tim McVeigh said. To these people in Oklahoma who have lost a loved one, I'm sorry, but it happens every day. You're not the first mother to lose a child or the first grandparent to lose a grandson or granddaughter. It happens every day somewhere in the world. I'm not going to go into that courtroom, curl into a fetal ball, and cry just because the victims want me to do that. Well, what a dick. I mean, it's true. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that, but I mean, that, like you did that though, allegedly at this point now. Well, he's okay. So he clearly had okay, a uh, big part of it. All right, so he goes and rents this truck. Now, now there's a the people that rented the truck, the people at the the rider mm. place uh, when. Tim McVeigh, he, he went in and used a different name, Robert Kling. Mm-hmm. You've heard that? Okay. Mm-hmm. He, he comes in, he rents the rider truck under the name Robert Kling. Now, the three people that work there said he was there with a guy who looked like a, he was darker colored skin, yeah, yeah. looked like a, what would be a whatever. Now, official story says Tim McVeigh showed up by himself. They're completely disavowing that three people that worked there said he was with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's another yeah, Al Qaeda type person yeah. of of figure here mm-hmm. that we don't know. Um, upon the so when the van pulls up, McFace says he parked it there, walked away like you said. That's mm-hmm. there's a story. There's tons of eyewitnesses said they saw two. Darker colored skin guys, one get out of the driver's side, one get out of the passenger side of that van, and run away from that van to a black truck and speed away, which was parked down the street, this black truck, in like these jumpsuit type things, like what you'd see, you always see in uh, the the very uh, typical, stereotypical uh, Italian guy, the, the, the running suits or whatever, oh, jogging yeah, suits, yeah, yeah. you know what I'm talking about? yeah. yeah. They were in black jogging suits, but they had, they look like these, the Persian, the Iraqi type. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, these guys get out of the van after it's parked, run to this truck, and then squeal away, almost hitting a lady who identifies. So you've had, so you have people that were in different parts of this area that all came forward and said they saw this. 
but the official story does not acknowledge that it was yeah, Tim no, McVeigh. Never heard that it was just only Tim McVeigh. So where, why are none of these other eyewitness things from different parts? The lady that almost got hit by this black truck, driven by these two darker-skinned mm-hmm. guys. And and it's not like these people got together and came up with this. These were random things of different reports. Right, throughout that block or two. Without right. any of them knowing the other one had also reported the same thing. You have all these identical reports. So who the fuck were these guys then? Because these people had to have existed. Mm-hmm. So if Tim McVeigh was the one in the van, then who did they see run from this right. van? And who was in the black truck? Who was in the black? Was it them? Yeah. I mean, there's something odd there to this. So what's true? That's the question. Right. I don't have, have an answer to that. Have you Googled that at all? We can. We can do it right now. Yeah, let's Google that shit. What do you want me to Google? I don't even know how to search um, it. Rumors of two men. How do you spell like Al-Qaeda? Yeah. Al-Qaeda. Okay, you can do it that way, too. I mean, probably the easiest way to... <clears throat> Maybe go with that. That's fine. Um, well, there you go. Gathering the affidavits of 22 eyewitnesses and 2,300 pages of corroborative documentation. This author of this book, um, that there was a third terrorist named Hussan Hasim al-Hasudi Wakiyaki. An Iraqi soldier in the first Gulf War who was the John Doe number two, which John Doe number two was in the video that I watched, yeah. uh, who allegedly accompanied him um, to in the, the yep in the in the rider truck and the ammonia. Okay, so but that's interesting because they're saying it it was they're still tying McVeigh to driving that truck there, but well, somebody was with him. Mm-hmm. But yet, eyewitnesses said they saw two darker complected people get out of that truck and run. Yeah. So was there a third person there? Was McVeigh even in that truck, or did he just help put it in the van? And, you know what I mean? Now, he later, did he not at one point in his taped, after the fact, after they arrest him or whatever, because they didn't know it was McVeigh. Then they went, and this Robert Kling, they had the fingerprint and Mm -hmm. all this stuff, and tied it back to this McVeigh character. Then they went and arrest him, and didn't, when they had him and they had the interviews, did, he said he drove the van there, parked it, and did right. everything, right? right? Yeah, he used his name. But yet nobody has him. Nobody saw him do that. Right. Didn't he use his, his real name at, like, a hotel or something? Yeah. That's how and they that's caught him, they... because he put his real name somewhere stupid that he shouldn't have. Right. Like a dumb fuck. Let's see here. So... Oh, the very bottom paragraph talks about the Philippines connection, too. Well, it's, yeah, it's starting to do it right here, too. Uh, maybe I'll just read it. Representative Dana Rohrbacher, a Republican from California, cited this research in the report, the Oklahoma City bombing, was there a foreign, foreign connection? Within the report, the following statements citing several pieces of real and circumstantial evidence were made, supporting the main theory laid out by Jana Davis in her book, uh, All the Cities in the World... Of all the cities in the world, convicted terrorists Ramsey Youssef and Terry Nichols were in Cebu City in the Philippines at the same time three months before the Oklahoma City bombing. Youssef 
was the perpetrator of the first World Trade Center attack as well as the mastermind behind the planning of other high-profile attacks on Americans. Furthermore, Ramsey Youssef's phone records from the months before he detonated the first World Trade Center bomb in early 1993 show calls placed to the Filipino neighbor and close friend of Terry Nichols' in-laws in Queens, New York. The opportunity for interaction between American terrorist Nichols and Al-Qaeda terrorist Youssef is evident. Mm -hmm. One indicator is that this terrorist act had broader implications came came directly from Abdul Hakim Murad, Youssef's roommate, childhood friend, and fellow convicted terrorist. On the day of the bombing, Murad claimed responsibility for this terrorist act from his jail cell in New York. He bragged to his prison guards verbally and in writing that the bombing of the Murrah Federal Building was the work of the Liberation Army. His confession was similar to the one Youssef had made two years earlier in the immediate aftermath of the first attempt to destroy the World Trade Center, hours after he drove a rider truck into the garage of the North Tower of the World Trade Center and detonated the deadly bomb. Uh, Youssef called the FBI from a payphone in Newark International Airport and boasted that the Liberation Army had conducted the attack. He then boarded a plane and escaped, ending up in Manila, Philippines. Uh, note, the Oklahoma City bombing followed a similar pattern to the 1993 attack on the World Trade Center, a rental truck loaded with ammonium-based explosive using similar detonation devices based on the strategy of driving a vehicle into or near a target. Ironically, both were rider trucks as well. Mm-hmm. So they like to rent from rider. <coughs> rider must rent to anybody. Pretty much. They don't do background checks. Uh, another key piece of evidence that Jana Davis used to build the case in her book for Middle Eastern involvement was the fact that Hussein al-Hassani was one of a group of Iraqis hired to do odd jobs for a Palestinian landlord, Samir Khalil, who owned properties throughout the area. Khalil hired the Iraqi newcomers, supposedly refugees from the first Gulf War, to maintain his rental properties. Khalil himself served time for insurance fraud in the early 1990s. Hassani resembles John Doe too and was identified by witnesses on the scene. <clears throat> the connections by Davis in her book linking McVeigh to Murad, Youssef, and the former Iraqi soldier was made not only through Terry Nichols' connection in the Philippines, but by the suspected John Doe II, Hassan Hussein al-Hassani, to Samir Khalil, who according to the discovery of a published list of unindicted co-conspirators from the first World Trade Center bombing, that includes the name Samir Khalil. So Interesting. Yeah. Be curious. So basically this book... By Jana Davis, uh, it's called The Third Terrorist, The Middle Eastern Connection to the Oklahoma Bombing. So there's that. Uh, I, I think there's something to that. Yeah, I, I know, know. I agree. I'd like to read that book, to be honest with you, because mm-hmm. I think there we you, there may be more to it that kind of explains the web mm-hmm. of things here. Um, either way, let's go back to the, the thing. What, what else What else about this <coughs> you want to talk about? Um. How many people died on that again? 168 people. Yeah. So, and just injured 680 others. That blast is huge, man. And now, well, is there any uh, security camera footage of this? I don't know. Well, right there. Because I'd be curious, like, if there was. Hmm. Ooh, I like that one. I was just going to say, I had heard that there was bombs on the inside, too. And that's another piece that I've heard, and it's 
Maybe we should watch that and see what it says. Take 12 minutes. Oklahoma City bombing surveillance tapes cover up. Bombs found inside the Murrah building. We'll also focus on surveillance cameras, cameras that caught the bombing on tape and maybe the men behind the bombing. The news channel has new information tonight that there's a chance surveillance tapes could be the smoking gun evidence. Now, we asked candid questions in a rare face-to-face -face meeting with ATF officials close to the investigation. We learned that video collected from downtown businesses the morning of April 19th may someday be played before a jury. Officials won't say who or what exactly is on the tape. However, numerous sources have confirmed the tapes exist and that they reveal more than one bomber. So what evidence wow. are they asking for? They're asking for video taken from the Ryder truck from the Rigi Towers. Well, Kevin, it's a question we've all been asking. We've been asking that question since we first broke the story that surveillance cameras aimed at the federal building could have captured all those involved on tape. Now, sources have confirmed those tapes exist and that they show more than one bomber. The FBI also confirmed those tapes exist when they refused to release them, claiming the video is part of a criminal investigation. And now, for the first time, we get an on-the-record response from the head of the Dallas office, ATF. We learn that videotape could be unveiled as part of the prosecution's case. No officials will no officials will discuss specifically what's on the video, but we have been able to recreate some like of me. what may have been captured mm -hmm. by downtown surveillance cameras through the eyes of the witnesses. Now you're looking at a computer recreation of the final movements of the Ryder truck according to the people who crossed its path at Fifth and Harvey moments before the explosion. Tonight at 10, the witnesses will detail their memories of how they believe the suspects carried out the crime and made their getaway. Now, all these accounts share a common and unsettling similarity. The witnesses say they saw several accomplices, including the infamous John Doe number 2. ATF officials tell us the elusive John Doe is still part of this case, but will not comment any further. However, they did tell us that there's a lot about this case we don't know yet, information you can't find in the indictments against Timothy McVeigh, Terry Nichols, and Michael Fortier. It was just hours after the bombing when the news channel first told you about the possibility that surveillance cameras may have captured the explosion and the killers on tape. Our sources and sources for the L.A. Times describe what's actually on those tapes. The information shows some huge surprises, the biggest that it may have been John Doe number two, not Timothy McVeigh, who detonated the bomb. Just shut up and show the video. The latest on the investigation in this exclusive news channel. Ten minutes of fucking pre-roll, Jesus. Our new information comes directly from a source that has seen parts of those surveillance tapes. It also comes from reports now in the Los Angeles Times. But perhaps the biggest surprise is contained in the news channel's own information. Timothy McVeigh was not the last person to leave the Ryder truck. In fact, another man sat inside the cab of the truck after McVeigh got out. We believe that man is John Doe number two. See, I've seen a man that. who, for all we know, is still on the loose, leaving open a vital question. Was it John Doe number two who actually set off the bomb, not Timothy McVeigh, as we've all been led to believe? News Channel 4 has for weeks been demanding copies of the surveillance tapes from the FBI. The federal government so far is dragging its feet. But many people in the investigation have seen the tapes, and now so has a source willing to describe to the News Channel what the tapes show. The L.A. Times report shows there was a surveillance camera near the corner of 5th and Harvey and another near the corner of 5th and Robinson. Federal investigators recreated the time sequence leading up to the bombing by matching the video and still photos from the surveillance cameras. Since we can't show you the tape ourselves, we're reenacting what our source says he saw on those tapes. As witnesses told the news channel before, the tapes show the Ryder truck parked in front of the Murrah building where we now know the blast went off. 
As witnesses also told us, the tape showed two men sitting inside the Ryder truck. A man strongly resembling Timothy McVeigh gets out of the driver's side, steps down. He then appears to have dropped something on the step up into the truck. He bends down and appears to pick something up off the step. Then he turns and walks directly across 5th Street toward the Journal Record building. All this time, John Doe number 2 is still inside the Ryder truck's cab, sitting on the passenger side. Time passes. The surveillance tape is time-lapse photography. Without knowing exactly the time interval between shots, our source can't be sure how long John Doe number 2 sat in that cab. What was he doing all that time? Then the tape shows John Doe number 2 getting out of the passenger side of the Ryder truck. Again, the tape shows that a bombing witness accurately described what happened next to News Channel 4. Standing in the building, and uh, I was looked out the window, and I seen uh, a Doe's truck, and I seen a man get out of the Doe's truck. The tape shows John Doe number two getting out, shutting the passenger side door. He steps toward the front of the truck and is momentarily out of the frame of the surveillance camera. But shortly, he appears back in frame, walking toward the rear of the truck, still on the sidewalk in front of the Murrah building. Again, he turns east toward the front of the truck, looking toward the street. John Doe number two then walks diagonally across Fifth Street toward the east, as if heading toward the YMCA or the intersection of Fifth and Robinson. He again leaves the frame of the camera. Another camera shooting from another angle clearly shows the actual explosion that destroyed the federal building and killed 169 people. So what does the mysterious John Doe number two look like in the tapes? The man who stayed inside the Ryder truck, possibly triggering the bomb? Well, his features are obscured by a baseball cap in the portion of tape seen by our source. The same kind of cap shown in the composite drawing first released of John Doe number two. The cap was a sports cap, flame style. The man himself was taller than the man resembling McVeigh and much thicker in build. He appears to have a dark or olive complexion. Our source saw only a few minutes of tape. He didn't see all of the almost 20 minutes of surveillance tapes that reportedly were distributed to FBI agents around the country to help in their investigation. But they do show enough to raise some crucial questions. Who actually set off the bomb? What was John Doe number 2 doing in the cab of the truck after the McVeigh lookalike got out? And how did John Doe number two get away from the Murrah building? Uh, my understanding is there was a video of McVeigh getting out of the Ryder truck, jumping into this other pickup with John Doe number two. Uh, well, where's that video? Are we ever going to get to see it? Do you realize what you've just seen, America? Hey, the government <laughs> had multiple surveillance camera tapes. In fact, when it finally came out in court... When the federal government declared in 2001 that they wouldn't release the videotapes because of national security implications, that there were actually 12 surveillance camera tapes that had had these different Islamic individuals, these Arabic men with McVeigh and others, as well as the BATF uh, hiding out right down the street, uh, preparing to pounce on the operation and declare themselves the heroes, the saviors, the victims. Think about it. Now in 2001 and right into 2002, the federal government claims national security and refuses to release 12-plus surveillance camera tapes. What are they hiding? And the feds never tried to use it in court. I mean, if they had McVeigh pulling up alone and bombing the building and it was just a truck bomb, why not use the actual surveillance camera tapes to do it? But they didn't do that. You have to ask yourselves why. What's on that tape? <laughs> well, after you've seen all this evidence, it's clear. Yeah. Think about it. It's a federal building. 
course it was going to have surveillance. Oh, yeah. Fuck but yeah, way more than just two just cameras. Just like the uh, on 9-11. You're Pentagon? telling me the Pentagon had no fucking... Everything around there, all the footage, not a single goddamn one shows a plane hitting the goddamn building. They're just all of a sudden, boom. No security footage, though. Why? You're telling me... security, but you can't see that. Bullshit. <laughs> well, then... What, what, is the, what the fuck does the FOI or FOIA do yeah. for us? Nothing. No. Well, it, it'll, do, it'll do enough to... I mean, there's stuff that can be released, but you're not going to get the stuff that you actually want. Yeah. It's bullshit. Mm-hmm. All right. Federal involvement. Ratcheting up the police state right here in America. One explosion caused, because here's now what we are starting to learn about uh, the succession, or what someone obviously hoped would be a succession of explosions. The first bomb that was in the federal building did go off. It did the damage that you see right there. The second explosive was found and diffused. The third explosive that was found, and they are working on right now as we speak, I understand, both the second and third explosives, if you can imagine this, were larger than the first. All right, real quick. I never heard there was more than one. Yeah, I heard that too. Uh, if they defused all these that were in the fucking building... Well, the rider truck was outside. Mm-hmm. That was supposed to be the one that did all this damage. But yet they diffused bombs inside. How did they get there? And how did they know there were more bombs there? Mm-hmm. So try to imagine two or threefold happening mm-hmm. uh, what we've already seen there. It is just uh, incredible to think that there was that much heavy artillery that was somehow moved into the downtown Oklahoma City Federal Building. Two other explosive devices were found that were not detonated, and they were larger than the first. I think he said another bomb. Another bomb. Oh my God! Another bomb. We uh, just saw. If you were watching there, there was a white pickup truck backing a trailer into the scene here. They're trying to move people out of the way so they can get it in. Appears to be the Oklahoma County Bomb Squad. Uh, it's their bomb disposal unit, essentially, is what it is, and it is what they would use to, if if the report that we gave you just a few moments ago turns out to be correct, that they have found a second explosive device of some kind inside this building. They'll back that trailer down there, and the uh, bomb squad folks will go in, and they will use that uh, that trailer. You see the, the bucket on the back there, sort of, this is how they would transport the explosive device away from this populated area to try to do something with it. The Justice Department is reporting that a second explosive device has been found in the AP Murrah uh, building in downtown Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike, you're still with us, aren't you? Yes, I am. Yeah. And I might tell you, in addition to that, that in fact, what we were told at the scene a few minutes ago was that, in fact, two different explosive devices were found in addition to the one that went off. So a total of three. A total of three. Now confirmed uh, through federal authorities that a second bomb has been found inside that federal building in Oklahoma City. It was an explosion at 9 o'clock this morning that did that damage you're looking at right there, blowing off the entire north face of that building. Again, you're looking at the north face there. A second bomb was found on the east side of that building. All right. So with all these goddamn bombs found, there's tons of reports about it. But it's only the rider truck. Yeah, that's bullshit. I mean, the rider truck's the official story. Just like 
Lee Harvey Oswald managed to get off uh, 47 shots with his piece of shit gun, and he was a horrible marksman. But he's the only shooter. With a shitty gun that would never fire that many gun yeah. shots, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, at a certain point, or, or, or all these people are reporting false. Oh, is this the beginning of fake news? And why would they report all this shit? Why were they being told this stuff if it wasn't, wasn't true? true? Yeah. Well, who's fucking telling them this? Who's, why would you tell them there's multiple bonds being diffused? Things like that. Why? doesn't make sense. It's easier to cover that up after the fact, though. Right, right. Just don't acknowledge it. Bomb squad is on the scene. That second bomb has not exploded. We don't know quite the status yet if they've managed to defuse it, but it has been confirmed that a second bomb was found on the east Before side. I have is that one device was, uh, was uh, deactivated. Apparently there's another device, and obviously whatever did the damage to the Murrah building was a tremendous, uh, very sophisticated explosive device. So President Clinton just called Frank uh, Keating, Governor Frank Keating, and he says that three FBI anti-terrorist teams are in route to Oklahoma City. Right now, they are saying that this is the work of a sophisticated group. This is a very uh, sophisticated uh, device, and um, it has to have been done by an explosive expert, um, obviously, with this type of explosion. Alright, before we go on any further this video, um, Timothy McVeigh had taken some friends of his out. He had made some little, you know, attempt at one of the, like a real tiny version of mm -hmm. this bomb. We took a bunch of his friends out to the desert, or in a des desert area, and he was going to show them, watch this, and it'd be like a firework kind of thing, you know, right. like you major in fireworks, now you were going to show them off. Took his friends out there, lit this thing, and it was like a, kind of like fizzled, though it didn't do anything. Mm. That was a horrible bomb maker, he didn't know what he was doing. I didn't know that either. Terry Nichols was the fucking guy behind the making of a bomb. Mm -hmm. So you're telling me, I mean, it's not completely unplausible that you can learn how to make a bomb over the course of a couple months, mm -hmm. but something big enough that filled the entire back of a goddamn... Rider, rider truck. truck, these barrels of this stuff mm -hmm. to do that kind of damage where a month or two before that, you build one in the Couldn't even make a fucking size of a goddamn uh, milk jug and it fizzles? Nothing happens? Yeah. But yet you're able to come up with this giant barrels, multiple barrels of this uh, nitrate, ammonium nitrate. It just... I don't know. It kind of seems like bullshit. Plus, mm. now they're finding all these bombs, that, reports of all these other bombs in the building that they're diffusing. Something's not adding up right now. Yeah, I don't know why, when I watched that video, it never once mentioned a second or third bomb. Because you're watching official story-sponsored video. Probably, yeah. Medical teams downtown are unable to get into the wreckage to retrieve more of the injured because of the presence of other uh, bombs in the area. Well, I just took a look down the street uh, at the Morrow building again. I see another bomb truck going, so apparently they're going to try to get out that third bomb that's been talked about. Still a lot of activity around the Morrow building. Uh, security concerns that another one still might go off. Fortunately, it didn't because the second device that they found, we understand, was even more powerful than the first. 
They then found a third device, and you can see the look on this woman's face at the fear that she might have to go through the same thing again. They then found a third device, which was also larger than the first. Uh, hard How could it be larger than the rider but truck? Certainly through... Uh, I don't think... I think... I see, I don't know. This makes me wonder if the rider truck was really part of it. The rider truck could have been the decoy. Mm-hmm. Oh, the bomb came from the rider truck. What if the bomb didn't come from the rider truck? What if the yeah, bomb came from inside the fucking yeah, building? Yeah, because if you look at it, it looks a lot like 9-11. It comes and goes straight down like a controlled demolition. And if you think about, okay, so only a portion of this building was done. Mm-hmm. These other triggers, these other bombs that they were defusing, could have been in other parts of the building they were supposed to have gone off. So the whole thing some, could have been leveled. And the whole thing would have been leveled. Yeah, so this could have been like the, I think the original 9-11. This could have been the original 9-11, just well, like the plans. And a much smaller building, mm-hmm. but in a series of attacks that were all... You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Rider truck was a decoy. I don't think there's anything in that fucking rider truck. You could be very possible. It could be Let's, very right. There's, there's 30 seconds left of this video, and then I want to go to this one right here. Okay. And we'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, some good work by some munitions experts and the uh, explosive sniffing dogs. Further tragedy has almost certainly been averted here. Uh, but it was a great stroke of luck that we actually have got diffused bombs. Well, that it's through the bomb material yeah. that we were able to track down uh, who committed this atrocity. Good question. All right, so this other video we're going to watch, Oklahoma bombing was an inside job. Timothy McVeigh was a CIA patsy. Basically the same thing as Lee Harvey Oswald Mm -hmm. was a patsy. The majority of people still believe that Timothy McVeigh was a right-wing extremist who bombed the Oklahoma City building with a rider truck because he was upset with the government. People close to the event told a very different story. A local congressman believes that convicted bomber Timothy McVeigh and his accused co-conspirator Terry Nichols are not the only ones involved. The Oklahoma State Representative Charles Key produced a videotape featuring witnesses who claim to have seen Timothy McVeigh with another man the morning of the bombing. He was wearing a ball cap. Timothy McVeigh had his on backwards, which just like this. It was on his head. The other gentleman had his on like this. In fact, the FBI had actively pursued John Doe number 2 in its initial investigation, then denied his existence altogether. Why? There were also multiple reports that explosives were found inside the Murrah building. The Justice Department is reporting that a second explosive device has been found in the AP Murrah uh, building in downtown Oklahoma City. Uh, Mike, you're still with us, aren't you? Yes, I am. And I I might tell you, in addition to that, that in fact what we were told at the scene a few minutes ago was that in fact two different explosive devices were found in addition to the one that went off. The second explosive was found and diffused. The third explosive that was found, and they are working on right now as we speak, I understand, both the second and third explosives, if you can imagine this, were larger than the first. Bomb squads were actually caught on video, pulling into the building to retrieve these devices. They'll back that trailer down there, and the uh, bomb squad folks will go in, and they will use that uh, that trailer. You see the, the bucket on the back there, sort of, this is how they would transport the explosive device away from this populated area to try to do something with it. I just took a look down the street uh, at the Morrow building again. I see another 
bomb truck going, so apparently they're going to try to get out that third bomb search. that's been mm -hmm. talked about. On the last one. This was even confirmed right, by the governor go. at the time, Frank Keating. One device was uh, was uh, deactivated. Apparently there's another device, and obviously whatever did the damage to the Murrah building was a tremendous, uh, very sophisticated explosive device. Members of the ATF who would have normally been in the building were tipped off prior to the bombing. Mm. He saw what appeared to be a police bomb squad truck near the Murrah building two hours before the blast. It had a shield on the side of the door and it said bomb disposal or bomb squad blow it. And I really found that interesting. Another witness who spoke to ABC News on the condition of anonymity will tell the grand jury tomorrow he was told by an ATF official agents working in the building had been warned in advance not to come to work. He just came out and told me that the ATF wasn't in the building that day. They'd been tipped by their pagers not to come to work, uh, which I was, flabber I was flabbergasted. McVeigh would even claim in a letter written to his sister, which was published by the New York Times, that he was actually recruited for black operations, which included smuggling drugs into the United States, as well as assassinations. One may brush this off as the ravings of a madman. However, McVeigh was filmed at the Camp Grafton Military Facility in North Dakota on August 3, 1993. McVeigh's official records state that he was discharged over a year prior from the Army Reserve in May of 1992. Huh. Perhaps even more interesting is that Camp Grafton was specializing in training troops in explosives and demolitions at the time. Huh. When all was said and done, the security tapes reported to have captured the entire thing on video were rounded up and classified. In 2009, they were finally released. <laughs> and magically none of them caught the bombing. The excuse being they were all having their tapes changed at that exact moment. Oh, man, that's very similar to the Pentagon. Well, you know, we do do it at the same time every day, so, you know, it makes total sense. Yeah. This event would be labeled domestic extremism, which was used Irony. to demonize critics of world government, militias, believe it. and create fear within mm. the populace. Muslim extremism seemed to show its ugly face in then unprecedented fashion on February 26, 1993. A truck bomb had gone off in the parking area of the World Trade Center. Luckily, the bombers failed to follow instructions and parked the truck carrying the explosives against the main support column. What is not discussed, however, is the bomb was actually built by an FBI informant under the supervision of the FBI. Huh. Ahmed Salam, a former Egyptian army officer who had been doing undercover work for the FBI, was the man who actually built the bomb. When he was told that he would have to use real bomb-making material instead of harmless substitutes, he became suspicious and began taping his conversations with FBI officials. Last winter, the FBI was wow. praised for its speed yeah. in cracking the case of the World Trade Center bombing and bringing four suspects to trial. Now, there is some evidence that the FBI may have known of the plot in advance through an informant and might, might even have stopped the bombing that killed six people. Notice the media emphasizes that they might have been able to stop it. They then gloss over the fact that the bomb was built by their agent under FBI supervision in conjunction with the district attorney. FBI agents might have been able to mm -hmm. prevent last February's deadly explosion at New York's World Trade Center. They discussed secretly substituting harmless powder for the explosives, but they didn't, according to the FBI's own informant, Imad Salem. Unbeknownst to the FBI at the time, Salem recorded many of his conversations with his handlers. The actual recording where Salam discusses this with his FBI handler, John Antisev, was released years after the trial. You got paid regularly for, for good information. I mean, the expenses were a little bit out of the ordinary, and it was really questioned. 
Don't tell Nancy I told you. But well, I have to tell her, of course. Well, then if you have to, you have to. Yeah, because, I mean, the lady was being honest, and I was being honest, and everything was submitted with a receipt. Yeah. Right. And now it's questionable. It's not questionable. It's like a little out of ordinary. Okay. You know. All right. I don't think it was. If that's what you think, that is fine. But I don't think that, because we was start already building the bomb, which is went off in the World Trade Center. It was built by... Uh, 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 supervising uh, supervision from the bureau and the GA and we was all informed about it and we know that the bomb start to be built by who by your confidential informant what a wonderful great case hmm. following the convictions huh. of the Muslims who were too inept to make their own bomb and park the vehicle in the proper area Salam was pulled into the FBI's witness protection program where he has never been heard from again Prior to the largest and most devastating terrorist attack on U.S. soil, the United States was poised as the first truly global superpower. Brzezinski would muse in 1997 that geostrategic success would represent a fitting legacy of America's role as the first, only, and last truly global superpower, and that the only way to mobilize Americans was a truly massive and widely perceived direct external threat. In September of 2000, a neoconservative think tank called the Project for a New American Century echoed Brzezinski's statement, mm -hmm. saying the United States is the world's only superpower, combining preeminent military power, global technological leadership, and the world's largest economy. An engine for New World Order ideals, members of PNAC included Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, Jeb Bush, oh, interesting. Scooter Libby, William Crystal and Paul Wolfowitz. Wow. Describing the difficulty in projecting force, they write the process of transformation is likely to be a long one, absent some catastrophic and catalyzing event, like a new Pearl Harbor. This takes us full circle to the September 11th attacks of 2001. In my previous film, Fabled Enemies, I expose in great detail the Saudi Arabian, Pakistani, and Israeli connections in conjunction with this international intelligence operation. In the early 1980s, bin Laden worked with operatives from U.S. intelligence, the Pakistani military, and Arab states. They ran a wide-ranging covert network that recruited and financed Muslim fighters to battle the Soviet army. The hijackers that were trained at U.S. military installations and protected by the FBI and CIA. The military exercises leading up to 9-11 and those that took place as the attacks occurred. Open line. Command, Sergeant Richmond. Sergeant Richmond, Sergeant Richmond, Sergeant Cheyenne Mountain Test Control, how are you? I'm doing fine. Okay, I need you to terminate all exercise inputs coming to Cheyenne Mountain at this time. Copy. And uh, stay on loop until I verify that you before the connectivity is disconnected on the exercise side only. Okay, no, do not do any more inputs on the exercise side and stand by. I got Cheyenne Mountain on the line. Terminating all exercise inputs. So, over, see if you didn't know this uh, exercise. Oh, yeah. The Black Ops Program, Able Danger, and the Shadow Government Involvement. This morning we learned that the Vice President wasn't the only one sent to an undisclosed location on September 11th, that an entire backup government was and is still there and may be there for as long as anyone now at least can imagine. As well as much, much more, the government has lied about 9-11 repeatedly and used it to dominate the Middle East while creating an evolving police state here, encroaching on civil liberties at home. And of course, building a new world order. 
There is a chance for the President of the United States to use this disaster to carry out what his father, a phrase his father used, I think, only once and hasn't been used since, and that is a new world order. We know now that September 11th of 2001 was the beginning of what we might call a new world order. The new world order that uh, uh, this president's uh, father talked about with such great enthusiasm seems to be high on the agenda of this administration. Under the second Bush administration, massive amounts of civil liberties were openly and brazenly taken away following 9-11. The passage of the Patriot Acts, the Military Commissions Act, and other horrifying anti-constitutional legislation was enabled by the incredible amount of fear generated by the media, all in the name of keeping us safe here at home. The war itself would create huge profits for the military-industrial complex, and the globalists would seize even more power and control over Middle Eastern resources in what they planned to become a Eurasian Union under their control. Although the establishment claimed to be fighting for our freedom abroad, they were destroying our... Interesting. I don't know. The only one I want to play is this one. Yeah, I was looking at that one, too. Go ahead. Um, this is Timothy McVeigh's secrets the government kept from you. And then we'll have one final discussion. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out why they're hyping this so much, why they're making such a big deal about it, why they're misrepresenting everything we've said so much. This is, conservatively, ten times, I thought about this a lot, it's about ten times any previous attack we've been under. Hundreds of newspapers a day, TV shows every day, national news, lying about Infowars.com and yours truly. I don't want to speculate, but I think they may be getting ready to attack military personnel during Jade Helm. And I've said coming up, they'll have false flags where they have Patriots target military personnel. Personnel get targeted. Then they say, it's all your fault, Alex Jones, that this group of militia attacked the military. And, of course, it'll be contractors, probably foreign, that do it. They will uh, grab one mentally ill patsy who's being watched in a militia group led by feds. There's a low IQ. They'll be drugged up, never again seen like McVeigh or Zarnev, uh, the Boston bombing your brother. Mm-hmm. Even if they plead not guilty and say they were set up, they'll never see the light of day. They'll be, they'll be put in a supermax prison. And if you look at who's in the supermax prison, I was doing some studies, uh, you know, on the big one in Colorado. I, I spent like four or five hours this weekend looking at it, and I noticed it was all political people like Theodore Kaczynski and Terry Nichols and others, who basically said they were set up later and it was part of a larger operation. And they admit the Justice Department then runs what they eat, who they can talk to, and that they're never allowed basically to ever talk to the media or anybody. So it's just where they send you when you're the new boogeyman, new cutout. Because, I mean, you notice that pretty interesting. Terry Nichols never attacked anyone since he was arrested. And Terry Nichols came out in affidavits from the time from lawsuits. I've interviewed uh, people that were in jail with him as well. I've interviewed the lawyers of uh, FBI agents on air. The FBI agents credit two of them. I remember in the LA Times went public about five years after 
uh, Oklahoma City and said, no, we saw the footage. McVeigh was with a bunch of other men, and there was a cover-up. They seized all the surveillance cameras from surrounding businesses in the YMCA, and they just stick him in that Supermax. He gets out a couple hours a week to stand in a tiny courtyard where he can see the sky. He talks to no one else. Jail guards slide the food under. And every time he gets to talk to somebody, he goes, McVeigh was black ops, special forces, uh, there to set up militia groups. He didn't want to go out with the bombing. And uh, he came to the house and told me, that's why I'm here. And then we have all the documents where he was high-level infiltrator, uh, you know, highly decorated uh, in, in work for Schwarzkopf, all the rest of it, put into an intelligence infiltration operation. We know the name of the... German National Intelligence Officer, the FBI agents, the ATF officers in a team. The whole story, We have the whole thing from every angle. We know exactly what happened. And you notice he's in a supermax. All because McVeigh basically ran to his house and told him and cashed some stuff there and said, if anything happens to me, this is what's going on. I'm being set up. I'm going to try to stop the bombing. And they might not have even burned McVeigh. They were probably just going to blame the white supremacist Elohim City but McVeigh's like like Tony Montana in the end of Scarface where he mm -hmm. goes, you think I'm a worm like you? You think I'm going to kill kids? I told you, no women, no kids. And that's what happened to Tim McVeigh. You are watching the... Sorry. Yes, sir. Um, so, Dave. What do you so, think? What do you think? Rhino. What do you think now happened? Uh, Final well, answer. I don't believe the official story now. Um, I was led to believe, I was led down that path of the Tim McVeigh story and that he was the only one and that Tim Nichols backed out last second. Um, now watching these, there's a lot more to the story than what meets the eye. So what was, okay, so instead of, obviously now, it's kind of like having the curtain peeled back. Yeah, yeah. But, so the official story... Tim McVeigh had help with uh, Terry Nichols and uh, Mike Fortier or whatever mm -hmm. to whatever. He goes and does this. They originally were investigating, but now the, the, the John Doe number two, but then kind of threw that away like, oh, there is no John Doe yeah, number two. It never happened. He was somebody Only else. Tim McVeigh, lone gunman type. Mm -hmm. And, but, yeah, they, you know, so like they had McVeigh... Uh, what they fucking ex executed him, right? Uh, injection or whatever. And Nichols is in prison. Uh, Fortier. I don't know whatever happened to Fortier. I should look that up. Yeah. What's his name? Mike Fortier. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Let's see what happened with Michael Fortier. Uncle Leslie Bowen witness leaves prison. It was in 2006. Michael Fortier, the star witness in the Oklahoma City bombing trials, was released from federal prison on Friday. This was in uh, January of 2006. So he appears to be free. I mean, doesn't say that he's dead? No. No, I don't, I don't think so. Let's click on his... 
Michael and Laurie Forte were considered accomplices for their foreknowledge of the planning of the bombing. In addition to Michael assisting McVeigh in scouting the federal building, Laurie had helped McVeigh laminate a fake driver's license, which was later used to rent the rider truck. Forte agreed to testify against McVeigh and Nichols in exchange for a reduced sentence and immunity mm. for his wife. There you go. Right. He was sentenced on sentence. May 27, 1998, to 12 years in prison and fined $75,000 for failing to warn authorities about the attack. On January 20, 2006, after serving 10 and a half years of his sentence, including time already served, Forte was released for good behavior into the witness protection program and given a new identity. That's why you don't hear about him. He's yeah. probably dead. Yeah. Um, it goes on to, no John Doe number two was ever identified. Nothing conclusive was ever reported regarding the owner of the unmatched leg. And the government never openly investigated anyone else in conjunction with the bombing. Although the defense teams in both McVeigh's and Nichols' trial suggested that others were involved, Judge Stephen Taylor found no credible, relevant, or legal admissible evidence of anyone other than McVeigh and Nichols having directly participated in the bombing. When McVeigh was asked if there were other conspirators in the bombing, he replied, Because the truth is, I blew up the Murrah building, and isn't it kind of scary that one man could wreak this kind of hell? On the morning of McVeigh's execution, oh, the dog got excited over that. Dog doesn't agree with uh, the official story either. Mm-mm. On the morning of McVeigh's execution, a letter was released in which he had written, "For those die-hard conspiracy theorists who were, were, refused to re- believe this, I turn the tables and say, show me where I needed anyone else: financing, logistics, specialized tech skills, brain power, strategy." Show me where I needed a dark, mysterious Mr. X. Hmm. Do you honestly believe he wrote that? No. I don't either. Show me a video of him writing his letter where he wrote that. Yeah, I want to see the the, the paper or the penmanship and compare that to the letter he wrote to his sister and all yeah, that. I highly doubt yeah, there's a connection there. Um, because wouldn't it make sense if you need to sell a fucking narrative... That you would, your final thing would say everything you need to basically eliminate any possibility of anybody else being involved. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, McVeigh, you weren't fucking smart enough to do this on your own. You didn't have the financing to do this on your own. You didn't have the training to do this on your own. You may have had the training, but not to do it on your own. No. Sorry. There's too much other bullshit going on. What about all these other bombs? Why no discussion about that? Mm-hmm. Who was this John Donovan? Why were you investigating somebody that just never existed? And never talk about it again. Yeah. Nothing was conclusive. And then completely Bullshit. deny that, that you ever investigated him. Right. Why? There's no reason for that. Because um, So, Michael Fortier is probably dead or in the witness protection program. We ought to do one on the witness protection program. At some point. Forget about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Show. Forget about it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so... This is what I think happened overall. And we'll wrap this fucker okay. up. Well, I mean, you can input. Yeah, I still, I mean... I, I never... I guess I never really fully believed the official story. Just looking at the pictures... It, to me, does not look like it came from the truck. Anyways, I've always kind of thought that, but 
because I didn't really do any other research or look at anything else, I kind of had to believe the the official story. Um, and like I said, when I first looked, I only watched that one video, which obviously sells the narrative. Mm-hmm. But it looks, from the way that the picture looks of the building, looks like it was from a, a controlled demolition, like hotels. I keep saying that with 9-11. It's the same structural damage. If it was from the outside blowing in, there would be more damage on the other side of the building, not the same side of the building, because mm-hmm. bombs don't just go straight up. Like, it shoots outwards every which way, so there should be damage on the other side of the building as well. It should be blown out that way, and it's not. It was all down. So, yeah. So, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think there probably was probably four. I bet you there was probably four bombs. Um, and each one to take out. I, I think, and this the is building. the only part you could say Tim McVeigh acted alone is well, he was such a bad bomb maker, fucked up those other three. That's mm-hmm. why the whole building didn't come down. Just one went off. Mm-hmm. He managed to get one to go off, not all four. I also think the truck was a decoy. Yeah, I could see that. Um, I do think Terry Nichols is a. He was either in on this whole thing. But here's the thing. With that, the CIA connection all that, they, you know, whether anybody wants to believe this or not, do enough research, you'll see. It exists. This happens. The CIA controls Al-Qaeda. They, have, they, they, they sell them guns. They help them train. They do all that shit. They fund mm-hmm. Al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. We funded our own... Uh, Enemy, basically. Our own terrorist organization. Or a bullshit war. A complete fake, not fake, because there's actually people getting killed, but it's a bullshit war. Mm -hmm. And we funded it. We gave them the weapons they used to fight us. If you don't give them the weapons, well, then you have nobody to fight. Because we could have wiped them out, because they're fucking cavemen, basically. Mm -hmm. If you give them the tools and give them the training and, and then give them a reason to attack... Mm-hmm. Yeah. CIA is behind all of this. Yep. Every single one of these bombings, yes. So and so, Muhammad Al, whatever, mm-hmm. claims it, and their group claims it, but you can always tie that group back to the CIA. In one way or another. Yes. Yep. Every single time. That's corruption at its deepest, darkest level in this country. Mm hmm. I don't, I mean, was McVeigh a CIA patsy? Was Oswald a CIA patsy? Yeah. There's a lot of similarities. Was Nichols a CIA guy? Now they've got him shut up in a fucking maximum security prison. Supermax. I mean, you're never gonna... What the fuck is that? What? How the hell this water get over here? I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> CIA. Yeah, I think I just got poisoned. Uh, anyways, <laughs> once again, this is one of those things that not many people will necessarily agree with, or it's not talked about as much as 9-11 being a conspiracy, but I think Oklahoma City bombing was an inside job. I agree. I don't know how else you... Uh, I mean, you wrote the official story, but sure there's a lot of stuff that is no longer talked about that 
during the time of chaos, all these bombs being defused, all mm-hmm. this other stuff, a Chando number two, eyewitnesses, eyewitness reports of multiple people running from that van mm-hmm. uh, as it was pulled up that, uh, and, and taking off in this black pickup truck, almost hitting somebody, all these random people that had no connection all reporting the same thing and then not acknowledging any of that in your investigation. Just completely disavowing all yeah, of it. Just don't even talk about it. If we don't talk about it, it doesn't happen. It, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. No, that's not true, though. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, obviously, something's not quite right with this. Yeah. Was it inside job? I'm led to believe yes at this point. Especially with the fact that the ATF members got a text that said, don't come into work today. Yeah. And the guy saw the bomb squad stuff two hours away. Yeah, or two hours, or before, two hours before it yeah. happened, just a couple so blocks away. It's, yeah, I mean, it's too ironic yeah. at that point. You know what I mean? Yeah. So basically, once again, we sacrificed our own people for a bigger cause. Yep, to put more money in our, our government and our rich fat cat's pockets. Mm-hmm. So, Bullshit. They used white supremacists and that whole angle of things. To make them the reason to make them the patsies, basically that they're the reasons we need gun control. Yeah, they're the reasons we need, you know. And it's still going on today. Right. It's crazy. Dude. Well, that whole racial thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The fucking narrative never changed. No. They just use different examples. Yep. Why can't people see this? Why is it so difficult? Because they don't want to trust our government. Enjoy your CNN, you fucking morons. Yeah. All right. I'm going to watch the Kardashians. See ya. Okay.
response to the chaos that's occurring in the land. There's a road to communism, there's a global master plan. You'll never read about it in a book of history, cause it's been hidden from the masses to control their destiny. It's the news behind the news and the methods that they use. It's the blueprint and the plan they all rely on. And it's written in the protocols of the learned elders of Zion. have completed the hat trick people ruby ridge waco and now oklahoma city bombing i always want to say oklahoma i don't know why nothing against gays or any of that it's just for some reason i want to say oklahoma every time i don't know why anyways we completed the hat trick <coughs> you understand now why uh why we did all three in the order that we did them obviously because they happened in that order but maybe you see a little bit of the connection, why we got to where we got, and uh, and the giant fat conspiracy on the face of the Oklahoma, I'm just going to say it, fuck it, Oklahoma City bombing. Yeah. Maybe you don't believe it. Maybe you do. Maybe you think, holy shit, never really thought about that before until these guys talked about it. Or, yeah, maybe you're like, yeah, nope not true you guys are idiots well whatever i want to hear your opinion i also want to hear some ideas for future episodes i want to hear some uh any questions concerns comments anything you got throw it my way email it thinktankpod at gmail.com or if you can do it in 140 characters or less on twitter shoot me something at the think tank pod little at symbol 
the Think Tank Pod. Yeah. Everybody knows the sponsors. Go to theareaman.com, click the sponsor tab, Amazon banner, do your shopping. Amazon kicks back a small percentage of their profits. You get your great items at great low prices. Everybody wins. Also, phoenixbeardoils.com. Enter the promo code D2R during checkout. And you will get 10% off your entire order and a free sample. So, hope you enjoyed the uh, the hat trick of episodes the past three weeks. Um, after this, I don't know. But we do have a lot of stuff. We've been getting quite a bit of emails and we've gotten a lot of uh, topics that people want covered. So, we are, uh, at the time I'm recording this outro... We are uh, slowly hammering through some of these topics, uh, doing some research, and uh, compiling our information, um, and prepping to discuss. So by the time, you know, all this stuff is out there, these three episodes are posted and whatnot, we'll have probably a bunch more. And uh, But yeah, you got to keep sending us the... Uh, stuff you want to hear because um yeah it helps we don't want to do a bunch of stuff that you don't give a shit about so you want us to cover it send it our way and uh we'll do it so we appreciate you listening appreciate you uh subscribing downloading telling everybody you know and uh i can't tell you what the next uh episode or episodes will be because i don't know what order we're going to put them in I just know we have a lot of topics, and uh, we're looking for more. And, uh, yeah. So, now you know where we stand. See you next week. Now it'll go down in history as a terrible day When those Oklahoma bombs blew the building away A hundred and sixty-nine people died While the media lashed out and the government lied Seems the press and the FBI, they stirred it all up When they blamed it on Iraqis and a brown pickup truck But before they were through with their agenda that night They were blaming anybody who might lean to the right They blame those far-right, wild-eyed, anti-federal activists Those mean, extreme-right-wing domestic terrorists Those hate-filled, ill-willed, demon-white supremacists That's the enemy But it sounds kinda strange to me As they whipped up the witch and for a second John Doe I heard President Clinton blasting talk radio Seems he wants me to turn in anybody I meet who might listen to Chuck Carter as they drive down the street? Cause they're a far-right, wild-right, anti-federal activist A genuine, borderline, neo-Nazi racialist Mossad, jihad, Christian fundamentalist That's the enemy So extreme Which means it could be you or me Now there's so many questions that just won't go away Like why the ATF didn't show for work on that day when asked by a lady why they didn't show up, they said, If I were you, ma'am, I'd keep my mouth shut. And blame those far-right, wild-eyed, anti-federal activists, those paranoid, segment Freud, schizoid isolationists. We like scapegoats, Christian fundamentalists. 
Listen to the D2R Podcast Network, brought to you by Dream to Reality Entertainment. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the D2R Podcast Network on iTunes. Give us a rating and leave us a comment. We'd really appreciate it. Your word of mouth is our only advertising, so please do us a solid. Share us with everyone you know. Thanks for listening. But don't ever call a federal cop a jackbooted thug If you're a far-right, wildlife, anti-federal activist A mean, extreme, right-wing domestic terrorist A hate-filled, ill-will, demon white supremacist A Mossad, jihad, Christian fundamentalist A genuine borderline, neo-Nazi racialist A brainwashed, camouflaged, crazy Christian patriot A paranoid, sigmatoid, schizoid isolationist A homophobe, xenophobe